Welcome to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human with Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Have you ever asked yourself what it means to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What does it take to love, to really connect with another human being? How do we fully engage with and honor the humanity in us? It's time to really talk, listen to, and connect with one another. Come join in the conversation with your host, Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Good morning, everyone. This is Leanne Nguyen speaking to you. Um, And I welcome you back to the conversation about living, about being human. Uh, I'm welcoming you back on the morning of um, morning of September. It's September 13th. Now, you know, I was thinking this morning. September is a strange, a, a wonderful, strange, maddening month for those of us, at least, who are parents. You know, we're stumbling back to a new school year after the months of um, sunscreen and lost water bottles at summer camps, um, trips all over the country, or some of us all over the world to catch up with family who live far away. Um, and it's, it's really wonderful to see children gear up for a new school year, uh, for a new life, as far as they're concerned. You know, in these mornings of September, you would find, you would hear in vivo, in its pure, most childlike and most uh, wondrous forms, all the questions about life that we grown-ups also uh, all face. You know, uh, who's going to be there? Uh, will my teacher understand who I am and what I need to learn? How am I going to deal with not being with my old buddies? You know, uh, will I find my people? <laughs> what am I going to learn this year? Will I be able to learn it well? Um, and I get to go out to lunch this year because I'm in fourth grade. How much money do I need? How much should I get? And what should I get to eat? And who should I go with? And so on and so forth. You know, all the anxiety and excitement about social human connections, about making your way in the world, mastering new skills, about managing the losses that are necessary in order to grow, about finding out what you need to find out about yourself in order to make it in the world. All the questions about being a person in this world, in this life, that we struggle with every day, every year of our existence. These questions are all there as far as I'm concerned, in September, (laughs) voiced and lived by children with such innocence and truth. And, um, but also for me, being a resident of New York City, September is, is also really maddening in a, in a small way because of all the holidays that are scattered throughout the month. You know, first you have Labor Day and then you, you, you start school in the middle of the week and then you cannot really get started with a drop off and pick up routine, you know, because school is closed uh, for Rosh Hashanah and then Yom Kippur. Now, these holidays, which I do not celebrate because I'm not Jewish, make me always, you know, ultra aware that there is a whole other world right there a few blocks away that I'm not a part of, that is full of its own customs and wisdoms and boundaries that I rub up against every day, but that remain alien to me, to which I'm an outsider. And September also for a New Yorker is um, special and maddening because of 9-11. And every year since that original attack, we would commemorate on this week of September. We would go through the ritual of mourning, of celebrating heroism, of planning, of taking stock. And then as a nation, we go back next week, back to usual 
to, to, to business as usual with capitalism, with racism, with hate, with ignorance. So it's really maddening to me. Uh, you know, I immigrated to the U.S. as as a grown-up, as an adult, so I didn't know anything about being Jewish or about anti-Semitism. Um, I learned about being Jewish when I came to study at NYU and made a life in New York City. I learned about anti-Semitism when I studied the cultural history of psychoanalysis. I also learned about racism and about how victims of racism can in turn practice racism in all righteousness. When I entered the field of psychoanalysis as one of, uh, of a small handful of people of color. And then 9-11 happened and that was the first time that I learned about Islam. I have shared with you uh, before on this show about my wish and prayer in reaction to the attack of that September morning that I was praying when I saw the smoke and learned what that was about. I was praying that America would let this event help her be wise and humble. I wished that the terrible wound of that attack would open up Americans towards the light of love. Love for her own people who were hurting. Love for others also around the world whom she had hurt and who could teach her something about how to endure, how to suffer in dignity, and how to heal in kindness and with real strength, not with brute power. And I also share with you on this show my perspective that America has terribly failed to grasp the opportunity of that morning. I have not been shy about my belief that the wound which opened on that day did not lead America to the light of love and strength, but to a pit of hate and fear and alienation. We could have had a truly united world, but instead we had Afghanistan, then Iraq, and now Syria, and Gaza, and so on and so forth. And oh yes, let's not forget Guantanamo and ravaged villages in the Middle East and Asia because of the drone wars. In the name of what, I would like to know, you know, of, 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 of national security, of revenge, of humanity, of God? Anyway, today is the 13th of September, and I have as my guest Imam Khalid Latif. It took a lot of headache for us to find a date where we can both talk and be on the show, you know, and pure logistical calculations um, that landed us on this day of the calendar. It was complete coincidence. I only realized this morning that I'm having an imam on the show on the very week of 9-11 commemoration. You know, how's that for, for coincidence? But on the other hand, you know, I, I remember that there is really no such thing as coincidence because I am of the perspective that coincidence is, is really life uh, conspiring to push people to say yes to unfamiliar, unexpected things um, at the right times for deep reasons that they may not acknowledge consciously, but somehow need to follow. I don't know why this Muslim man said yes to my request. I know why I reached out to him. At least, you know, I know of some of the more conscious, superficial layers of my reasons. Because last year I was working with, with a, a client, a devout Muslim woman who was going through a, a, a terrible unraveling because of her divorce after 25 plus years of marriage. And she mentioned, she, she spoke to me about her wish to find herself again. 
and her effort to go back to her faith, but to do it on her own, not to follow the, the, the faith that was handed down to her by her father who had abandoned her or the faith that was practiced by her husband who had betrayed her or even the faith that she was trying to impart to her American-born children. She wanted to find her own voice, her own faith, her own way to God, to her God. And she mentioned to me finding a home at the NYU Islamic Center and and finding slowly a voice uh, through her conversations with the imam there. And so I thought, I want to talk to him too. (laughs) So I asked her, you know, will you introduce me uh, to your imam? And she said, yes. And I called him and he said, yes. And here we are this morning. You know, last week, I spoke to an 84-year-old psychoanalyst, and I asked her what is the one thing that she would impart to others, to us, about living after so many decades of, of being alive and of working on this earth. And she said, I always try to say yes to things. Well, last year I said yes to uh, Voice America when they proposed that I host a show. And my patient, a Muslim divorced woman and a mother of four grown children, said yes to me a few months ago, to me, a Buddhist psychologist and single mother of of two elementary school children. She said yes to me when I asked her to give me her imam. And the imam said yes to me when I called called him. And here we are. (laughs) Good morning, imam. Welcome to Voice America. I thank you so much for making time uh, to to join me. Um, Should I refer to you as Imam? Because when I I was thinking that, I thought, am I pinning you down to only one part of who you are? What what, what should we do? Who are you? Uh, Anything is fine. You can call me (laughs) Khalid if you you, Uh you want to. Imam is fine. Whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah. Well, how do you think of yourself? about how and why you exist in this place on earth? Uh, you know, I, I feel like I, I prefer people call me by my name, but I know it's uh-huh. also fairly hard for people to pronounce at times. Um, oh, really? So oh. Whatever it is, it's easier for them. But, uh, yeah. you know, you can call me Khalid if, if you're you're good with it. <laughs> okay, I will try. Um, you know, but sure. but you your work is primarily that uh, of an imam, right? Is that, would you say that that is sort of your calling? Yeah, so I, I serve as the university chaplain at New York University and the director of their Islamic Center. Um, mm-hmm. But professionally, you know, my role um, and title is, is imam. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in terms of understanding it from a calling perspective, uh, you know, I do feel like I'm blessed to, to be doing work that is very meaningful to me, um, that I'm passionate about, uh, that enables me to wake up every day and feel as if, you know, I'm in the right place for myself and mm-hmm. creating space for others. So, you know, in that sense, you, you could call it a calling. Mm-hmm. Would you indulge me? Would you mind explaining, pretend that um I'm I'm a child or a Martian, you know, because my my children asked me when I was telling them uh, about who I'm going to be speaking with this morning. And they said, what's that? (laughs) You know, what's an imam? What's uh, what's Islam? You know, and it's, it's a fascinating question when we think about it. All these notions that we, you know, right, socialized humans come up with. And how do we really explain that? To, uh, to, to to people, to creatures that don't know anything about these concepts. So can you indulge me? W- would you, can you please explain? Would you explain what, what, 
what does an imam do and what what does it mean to be a muslim sure um well you know i think to be an imam is going to vary from community to community uh just like being a priest or a rabbi uh, a pundit um you know any type of clergy pastoral care provider will vary from community to community based off of the makeup of the community you know where they are from a socioeconomic standpoint culturally racially ethnically uh the various experiences that we have as religious figures within given communities i think are attached to what the needs of that given community are um in the most literal translation into english the word imam as a arabic word means in front of hmm. uh and what it's alluding to is somebody who is a prayer leader so to speak so within the course of a given day muslims pray five times a day in terms of congregational prayers individual prayers that they're obligated to pray and when they pray in congregation rather than by themselves the person who leads the prayer is called the imam mm-hmm. um but these days you would find distinct communities uh that will utilize the role in a way that also provides counseling community development institutional development pastoral care uh and in other spaces it's just the person who is very specifically leading people in prayer um and there's other individuals that would take on the role uh, of various staff responsibilities. Mhm. So it's also it's not just spiritual but also civic leadership that you provide. It can be. I think for me in the role that I am being based in a university in Manhattan, uh the community that I'm blessed to serve um you know being in large part a student community but also people who live and work in the New York City area um necessitates us providing a diverse range of services and programs um so we do a lot of civic engagement a lot of media engagement uh religious services community service social services anything that you could really think of that you would find within a space as such uh, are things that we do um and my role is to oversee it all manage it um and kind of facilitate the development as best as i can. Mhm. Mhm. And and why you this was the first established um center, right, of 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 its kind ever at a university level at NYU. And i wonder yeah, so traditionally in the country you find thousands of hillels which are Jewish centers serving mm-hmm. Jewish life on university campuses, Newman centers for the Catholic community, a lot of Protestant ministries Um there's probably right now in the country 2 to 3 dozen Muslim chaplains uh at universities. Mm-hmm. Um of those in large part many are part-time uh some are volunteer um but it's a growing phenomenon that you know is finding funding and establishment uh, and we were um from amongst the first to have a chaplaincy role for Muslims and then beyond that the establishment of a fully functioning center um you know we were the first of its kind. Mhm. And is this in reaction to 9/11 do you think? Explain a little no, bit to the listeners. No, I list- don't think so. No, no. Um you know I do think the narrative around September 11th in large part has 
unfortunately been attached to much Muslim experience in the United States. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, that is kind of the way a lot of minority communities tend to have narrative imposed upon them, um, mm-hmm. where, you know, it's very easy, I think, to have constructs of fear um, when we are otherizing demographics. Uh, the Muslim experience in this country is as old as the country itself, where about 30% of slaves that were brought over in the transatlantic slave trade um, were Muslim. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the legacy that has existed in the African-American experience um, within Islam in the United States is something that's centuries old. Uh, But I think, you know, the way we as humans are essentially attracted to similarity and familiarity, and we tend to group ourselves in... um, communities that share a lot of externals, so too it's easy to then construct narrative that really builds itself upon unfamiliarity and creates um, stereotypical perspectives that become problematic for the demographic that is then made subservient to those stereotypes by a majority uh, group as such. And so I think, you know, what many Muslims experience in the United States, as well as abroad, um, is a narrative that unfortunately attaches much of our experience to just the last few mm-hmm. decades in the United States, a very mm-hmm. otherizing experience that says that Islam is from elsewhere, you know, 500 mm-hmm. miles away and 500 years in the past. Um, and will attach most Muslim experience or engagement to issues of security, um, perhaps immigration. And in reality, Muslims are involved and engaged in every part of society's fabric um, and are really much bigger than just a security bubble. Um, And the impetus for a lot of what we do um, is also not necessarily reactionary to people's kind of worst perspectives of us. Okay. Uh, I... We're coming up against the first commercial break, so I'm going to break here. But when we come back, I would love for you to explain, maybe to speak more about what it means to be Muslim then, because you just reminded me that there is a whole long, rich tradition, a whole long history, a whole well-established and and, 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 and vital environment people, you know, that maybe some of us, most of us were made aware of with the 9-11 thing and the whole narrative around um, Islam. So when we come back, would you engage with me in that, in explaining and speaking more about what it means? Okay, we'll be right back. Sure, Don't go away, great. folks. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world. 
across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, back to the conversation that I'm having uh, with uh, Halid Latif about his work as an imam and university chaplain, among other things. Right before we broke, I was asking um, him to explain uh, what it means to be Muslim these days. And and I have a larger agenda that, that, you know, because what I would like to ask you later is, you know, how do you explain, what, what does it mean what is God? <laughs> you know, I try to explain that uh, to my uh, to my eight year old, uh, and uh, it, it just really didn't go anywhere. And then forget it when we went on to explaining about you know what it means to be a Buddhist or, or a Muslim or a Jewish person. Anyway, so let's start with what to you? Can you educate us? Can you explain what it means to you to be Muslim? Yeah, um, you know, to be a Muslim uh, is to be one who practices Islam as a religion. Uh, The religion of Islam uh, is considered to be one of the world's major religions. Um, But the practice in and of itself is kind of embedded within the terminology uh, Islam Muslim in that it frames uh, the practice to be one that embodies internal and external elements to it. That to be Muslim is to be in a constant state of awareness and submission um, Mm. relevant to mindfulness and consciousness uh, around the decisions and choices that you're about to make. You know, why are Mm. you engaged in the actions that you're engaging in? Um, Why are you doing the things that you do? The values that guide your moral compass um, seek to yield a higher level of ethical conduct um, that enable you to be an asset for the people around you. Uh, and everything essentially goes back to um, God and how God would factor in to your decision-making. And so within that space, um, you see that there is kind of a cerebral element to it, um, but also an element that says that 
the most precious parts of you are not things that exist outside of you necessarily, um, but the most precious part of you is your heart. Uh, mm. Islam in and of itself is a very God-centric tradition. Um, and if we were to understand what that means, uh, I think we could say what it's not, and what it's not is meant to be egocentric. Um, mm. But what you're yielding to is a set of perspectives and a system that kind of transcends the self and understands the paradox of the self is that your ability to gain self-recognition and self-awareness is really only through the self itself. And once you are able to get to a place of that self-recognition in pursuit of self-actualization, you draw yourself closer and closer um, to a life that finds contentment uh, because you're not trying to appease your own kind of base whims selfishly, mm -hmm. but you're motivated in the pursuit of something bigger than that. Mm -hmm. But it's not about worshipping some deity, some external entity out there and complying and, 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 you know, and trying to run after that external morality. You mentioned the word ethics, which to me, I make a distinction well, you know, between being ethical and being like moral. Like there's a verse, sure, there, there's a verse in the Qur'an um, that says, uh, that have you seen the one who takes his desires as being his God? Um, mm. And the idea is that everybody essentially worships something. Um, mm -hmm. Some of us worship ourselves. Some of us worship the praise that people give to us. Some of us worship materialistic possessions. Um, some of us worship our own sense of superiority and that yields racism and bigotry. Some of us worship money and it yields greed. Um, the word in Arabic for desire that's used is hawa. And Arabic language is really deep and rich and there's a lot of nuance that gets lost. Um, and words that share root letters tend to have similar meanings. So in Arabic, the word for wind is also hawa. And the relationship between wind as hawa and desires as hawa mm, yes, is that yes. you, know, you can have desires that are as gentle as a cool breeze that they can just rustle the branches of a tree, or you can have desires that are so impactful and heavy that you know the winds have the ability to even knock down large buildings and cause a lot of turmoil and great storms. And right. how we succumb to those whims, you know, kind of plays a role. Um, in the development of a Muslim uh, and really what mm. goes into your decision-making and, and kind of choices that you're, you're taking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also to, to continue on that, on that imagery in terms of the, the wind of desire, you know, how do you find a center, right? Because if you just blow this way and that way, uh, you, wouldn't, you can just go crazy after a while and be completely dismantle the lost. So what is the grounding? What is the center in the midst yeah, exactly. of all that wind? And, you know, I think for many people, um, that sense of purpose is what we're trying to figure out. When I ask many people who come to see me, who go through really difficult life situations attached to mm -hmm. emotional turmoil, you know, mental wellness issues, people who are dealing with homelessness, insurance, survivors of various forms of abuse. I mean, anything you could think of, Mm -hmm. And they're looking for someone to talk to, someone who's going to listen and not just kind of speak um, or listen to respond, but just listen to understand. 
you know, the question that I ask people, or two questions rather that I ask people most often that their response to me is, I don't know whether they're of my faith or not. Um, one, you know, what are your values? Like what mm-hmm. really guides your decision making? And many people are in a place where we make our decisions just simply in satisfaction of the external, the pursuit of food, the pursuit of drink, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of sex. Um, And when I ask people what's really guiding their decision-making, what are their values, they say, I don't know. And then the second question I ask them quite often that I get the answer of I don't know too is, um, you know, what are your outlets? How do you take care of your heart And when they're very honest with themselves, they say, I don't know, because so much of what we're in grade with is this very rigid form of success. I would Mm -hmm. say it gives you a pursuit of complacency and attaches contentment to things that you possess and own, but in reality end up just possessing you, whereas a sense of self that allows for your relationship to be inward out um, can give you a contentment that regardless of what you have around you, allows for you to feel fulfilled. And that's what Islam is seeking to engage in its practitioner, um, an opportunity um, to feel that sense of balance, uh, regardless of what life throws in terms of celebrations, in terms of tragedies, or anything in between. Mm-hmm. You said earlier, um, you stated that, that that simple truth, you know, that uh, we all, we humans, we all worship something. And um, embedded in what you said after that, I translate as also that we're all looking for an answer, right? We're all looking for a way to be. Uh, whether we consciously name that effort or not, we're all stumbling around. <laughs> you know, sometimes we don't really question it because it's handed to us, you know, about how to be, right? Uh, I mean, the, the the lessons from the parents or the culture and so on. But I think that in my experience, at some point, um, any of us will come up against that question, you know, what is this all about? What am I about? What is my life about? How, how do I go on? Do you think, what, what, what is the answer? Is there, does Islam provide the answer or a way to the answer for people about how to be I mean, human? as somebody who practices Islam, I would say that, you know, it does. It provides a lot of different answers um, to many of the dilemmas um, and existential kind of issues that people would have. Uh, But, you know, I think the era that we find ourselves in is pretty anti-intellectual. You know, I work at a university. It's one of the best universities in the world. Um, And I've traveled to a lot of different universities in our country and in different parts of the world. And, you know, you have people who are studying to become doctors and lawyers and engineers and artists and academics and even activists, which is fine. And as they're ingrained in this, methodical curriculum to train them to be workers, you know, for many, no one is really training them how to be thinkers, um, to reflect on why they love what they love or why they hate what they hate or why they Mm -hmm. desire the things that they desire. And Mm -hmm. I think when you have that type of setup, it yields this very black and white kind of perspective and prism of the world and an inability to navigate the nuance of gray that is diversity, um, which then unfortunately bridges a lot of intolerance um, that we see ever increasing uh, in the world around us today. 
And, you know, mm-hmm. Islam as a tradition and a faith um, encourages the embrace of diversity uh, in terms of the principles around social equity and social justice that the Quran speaks about and the religion calls for. Um, they're fairly empowering. Uh, and I think one could find many different elements of solace uh, in a process that can yield contentment through many Islamic teachings. Mm-hmm. Also, the value of questioning, right? Yeah. I mean, one of to- the consistent um, statements in the Quran itself uh, is that it calls the reader to reflect, to contemplate, to think, to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and a central principle that's derived uh, is that, you know, certainty um, is only strengthened through periods of doubt, that mm-hmm. you need to go through a place where questioning is necessary in order for you to actually deepen in your sense of understanding. Um, Mm -hmm. And you see this as a consistent experience in the life of many individuals who are considered to be spiritual masters, religious leaders, um, prophets of God, you know, within kind of the narrative around men and women who are understood to be very close to the divine, that they had moments where, Um, doubt came in uh, as a part of just even their own increase on their spiritual journeys. Yeah, and and you're reminding me of the difference between faith and dogma. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about how we come to certainty or certitude, (laughs) you know, Um, as I was listening to you describe, you know, ex- explain Islam to me, I find a lot of similarities with Buddhism. You know, that notion of, of, of consciousness, of being mindful, uh, and of trying to transcend your base desire and, and to have real freedom. Um, and then I am reminded, you, you do a lot of interfaith work. Um, do you find eventually that at some point, you know, all religions are after the same thing? All religions offer the same thing? Uh, You know, I think no religion really owns um, certain values. Like, no religion owns contentment, love, mercy, compassion. Uh, And most, if not all, would espouse um, the pursuit of these values in some capacity. I think what makes religions distinct from each other is not necessarily how they call to values, but... um, elements of theology and practice. Uh, But I think in terms of the overall gain, you know, Mm -hmm. many religions um, will be categorized in this way where they're offering to the practitioner of the faith um, a process whereby they will gain um, in different ways. I think Mm -hmm. the unfortunate reality that we have is that you know, people can turn scripture into anything that they want it to. Um, And how we engage text and tradition and books at times is not necessarily reflective of those things themselves, but they're merely an extension of us and tools that we have. So, you know, religious texts have been utilized to be empowering and they've been utilized to justify crusades and transatlantic slave trades. Um, And, 
within that, you can see that there's a certain challenge that can come when you're dealing uh, with faith or really any text uh, of, of any kind. Um, but, you know, it, it really comes down to, I think, being able to understand it in the framework of reality, uh, that there's some people who will utilize the tools that they're given in pursuit of shared goals and mutual benefit for people of all backgrounds. And there's some people who will utilize the tools that they're given in their own self-interest um, to be able to advance either the needs only of themselves or even just a small percentage of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just have to see that religion is one of those tools that people can use in, in those ways. Can you say more about, I'm interested in this notion of of religion as a tool. Can you say more what you mean by that? What do you see through that? How can it be, how is it a tool? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think to me, religion um, has a purpose to it. And and the purpose of religion to me is that it should instill within the practitioner of any faith um, a desire to just bring benefit to themselves and to the people around them. And, you know, good religion is identified as something that takes on and challenges society's ills. Um, in our country, for example, if your practice of religion, you know, is not bringing you to a place to take on racism, which I believe is, you know, the worst ailment that the United States is wrestling with and has dealt with since it was founded, then I feel like you're not living your religion to its fullest potential or it's not really resonating in such a way because, you know, how we see people is not indicative of who they are, but how we see people tells us a lot about ourselves. Mm -hmm. To be in a space Mm -hmm. where we are exposed to narratives and realities that you just can't really be in denial of at this point they exist. Um, but still somehow are able to comfortably make justifications or reasons as to why, you know, black people continuously get shot in the streets or oil pipelines are being built within the lands Mm -hmm. of true indigenous populations of this country um, or that children are still separated from their parents um, months after being separated and ripped away from them at the borders of our country, Mm -hmm. um, let alone what's happening to just immigrants in general. Uh, To me, you know, good religion isn't just about let's label something as wrong, but let's also bring light and balance into what is taking place in front of us. Um, And at times I'll necessitate uh, disruption in order to be transformative and if that's not what religion is calling you to, um, you know, what is it really calling you towards? Hmm. Okay. It's a good place for our second and final commercial break. All right. We're going to leave for about two minutes and we'll come right back. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do you ever feel that you need to make changes but don't know how? 
Ever wish for someone who can help you find true purpose and make new choices? Dr. Nguyen is this person. Her passion is to help people bridge the gap between where they are and where they want to be. With Dr. Nguyen, you will enter a conversation that is unlike any other. You will make contact with yourself at a depth you never thought you could. You will give yourself an encounter with new thoughts, deep questions, and a renewed faith in your birthright to live the life you are meant to live. Dr. Nguyen's practice has been available to people from all over the world, across cultures and identities. She has built it as a lighthouse and a safe haven to give the deep support and clarity so you can fulfill the promise that you once made to yourself to live your purpose. Whether you are in New York City or anywhere in the world, visit her at drleanne.com. You can also contact her for a free consultation in person or on Skype. The website again is drleanh.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to On Living. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to ldnewin.phd at gmail.com. Now back to the show. Here again is Dr. Leanne Nguyen. During the break, uh, Khalid, I was uh, recapping for myself, thinking about what you were saying about religion, you know, and uh, I took it in as you were saying that it's it's a tool, right, that we use, that we can use to improve the world that we live in. It's also a tool that we can use to to transcend our little egocentric concerns and and whimsical-based constricting, restricting desires, you know, to go to a higher, deeper place. Uh, Essentially, religion can help us be better human beings, right? (laughs) Ideally. That's that's what I, that's how I heard what you said. But then I'm thinking, uh, but then also it goes against everything that makes us human, right? Because human nature is such that we want a familiar, we want to keep things manageable and small and, and, uh, and, and known, however specious that knowledge is. Do you know, do you follow what I'm saying? That it's what you are trying to do as a religious um, teacher and leader, you're trying to help us be better human beings, but you're also going against how we are. Well, you know, I think what it is 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 about helping us to recognize what actually makes us human, right? Uh-huh, and right. I don't even think, you know, the the idea is that we tend to become animalistic, um, but we don't really embrace kind of what it is that makes us dignified as humanity. Because even the animals don't do some of what it is that we do to each other. 
Um, and, you know, comparatively, we're not the strongest uh, of animals. We're, we can't fly. We, you know, we can't mm-hmm. swim to the depths of the oceans or jump the highest. But, you know, we're the only animals that even when our stomachs are full, we keep feeding ourselves. Right. And we don't care who it is that we take from. Uh, but the potential is there for us to also embody and epitomize real beauty inwardly and outwardly. And I think this is a paradox of the human being, right? Yes. Like a yes. lion, you know, knows that it has strength over those things that are weaker than it. And in self-defense, you know, it might react if something seeks to attack it. But a lion never goes out and just kills for the sake of killing nor slaughters for the sake of slaughtering. But mm-hmm. there's a purpose to it in terms of what it does as an animal. Yeah. We have the opportunity to become measured and balanced in what it is that we do and understanding that some of the lives that people are forced to live across the world um, are realities of us living the lifestyles that we live here um, and how we impact and kind of synergize with communities both domestically and globally. But it's really just about getting to a place of, of thinking and really trying to reflect on, well, what is it that will give me that inner sense of contentment? Um, and it's not going to come from just being in a place where you pursue wealth um, and material, you know, to, to nauseam, uh, but you live for a different sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. You're talking basically about greed. And when I greed, think about... Yeah. Yeah. And when I think about greed, you know, its companion is fear, right? You are greedy, and alongside with that, there's always the fear that you don't have enough. The fear that you need, you have to have more, otherwise you would perish. So, is in your travels, in your work, you know, and you witness a lot of terrible things and that, that is part of your job of trying to pull people out of it. What's your observation, you know, about the, about the, the, the greatest illness right now that, that, that we as a species, you know, are afflicted with? Is it greed and fear? Uh, I would say, I would say indifference um, and apathy. Huh. And, you know, that's uh-huh. not, I would say, rooted completely in laziness or things as such. But, you know, I think it's one thing to be a perpetrator of hate. Uh, but, you know, the people who are recipient of that hate aren't just recipient of it because of those that are perpetrating against them. Yeah. There's right. so many right. people who have the ability to do something to stop it that just sit back and watch. Like, You know, I just came back from Bangladesh where I was visiting the Rohingya refugee camps. Um, I had gone out there a year ago when the border between Myanmar and Bangladesh was first opened. uh, And there was about half a million refugees that were fleeing um, ethnic cleansing and genocidal violence in Myanmar going into Bangladesh. And now there's upwards of a million people that are there. And there wasn't one refugee that I had met a year ago or even just a few weeks ago, they couldn't tell me that they hadn't seen loved ones burned alive in front of their eyes uh, or um, that they hadn't seen family members or neighbors forced into their homes, which were then barricaded. And then the homes were set on fire so that people would burn along with everything that they owned. I mean, the stories of 
sexual violence and assault, mm-hmm. trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, the pain is real. And this second time that I went out um, was to see, you know, what the funds that we had raised, we had raised as an Islamic center about a million dollars um, to provide relief funds to uh, the refugees, both internally displaced in Myanmar and in Bangladesh. And, you know, I got to see some of the health facilities that we had built and some of the solar panel energy systems and clean water pumps. And because I'm talking to people, one of the distinctions that came in from a year ago and now um, wasn't that their pain subsided. They were still dealing with the aftermath of real pain and trauma. But so many of them felt a certain hope uh, because they felt as if people around the world actually were standing with them. And many of the relief organizations that I was speaking to, you know, said that the continuation of um, food distribution and medical care, et cetera, is going to really be contingent upon whether people just continue to give money to these people or not. Um, And their worry is that because it's not something that's in the media and people are not talking about it, that likely there won't be enough funds to continue to help people. And it just, you know, made me really think about, well, what does it mean to love somebody else? You know, and not in the framework of romantic love or physical Mm -hmm. love Mm -hmm. or anything like that, but just a universal love that we share for others because they are people like us, right? Like, in my tradition, we have a narration that says, uh, you will not enter heaven until you believe, and you will not believe until you love for your brother what you love for yourself, And Mm -hmm. when people make commentary on that narration, they say the word brother, and by extension sister, uh, Mm -hmm. is not your brother or sister in faith, but your brother and sister in humanity. Um, And there's another narration that says, you will not enter paradise until you believe, and you will not believe until you love one another. Um, But to have that innate sense of love for others, uh, you know, is not just something that's done at random. Uh, In Arabic, one of the words for love, like the most generic form of love, uh, is called muhabba or hub, which means love. There's about a dozen different ways you could say love in Arabic, but this most generic form of love, hub, it shares a root with the word for seed in Arabic, which is habba. Um, and the relationship between love, which is hub, and a seed, which is habba, is that you can take that love from your heart and plant it in as many mm. hearts as you want, but in mm-hmm. order for it to really rear anything, you, know, you have to cultivate it and care for it and pay attention to it. If I just take seeds and throw them in the earth, they likely aren't going to really return me anything back. But when you mm-hmm. watch over a seed and you plant it with precision and care, the beauty of it is that it never gives you just a seed back. It, it gives you more than that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're not going to love people if you don't spend time with them. You definitely won't love people if... All you do is spend time with stereotypes of them. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's going to come down to us really being able to think out this kind of ugly indifference that, you know, allows for people to engage on their own self-interest, um, that lets policy, domestic and international, be quite inequitous um, and problematic, to say the least. Lives are disrupted over and over and over. Uh, and I would say in large part that happens not just because 
people have clout that are perpetrating some of this inequity and injustice, but there's just so many more who are sitting back and watching and they're not doing anything to really to fix it in the ways that they can. Mm-hmm. And be- because also they maybe don't have the support or the urging or the discipline to practice love. You know, to me, loving, and, and I think that you are saying the same thing, to love someone, to love other human beings is an ethical and, and as well as spiritual, as well as, as intellectual exercise. It takes a lot. It takes discipline and, and clarity and, and soulfulness, you know, to see beyond yourself, to see and to hear another person and to reach out and to cultivate a kind of uh, attention. And um, uh, before we close, you know, I want to ask you to, to, to explicate a little bit more. What do you see is the main obstacle or conversely, what is the support or the resource that we can lend one another you know, toward this this activity, this task of loving other fellow human beings. What can we do? What is the support that we can cultivate or reach for? You know, I think as a society, we don't reach our full potential or pinnacle until mm-hmm. the most underserved and underprivileged amongst us have their needs met. And I think one of the ways that we can offer something to somebody is by possessing it in the first place. So if you have peace, like you will give peace. And if you have love, you will give love. Uh, But if you have confusion or agitation or frustration Mm. or anxiety, those are the things that you're going to do. And, you know, in order for us to be in a place where we take care of other hearts, I think the starting point is that we take care of our own hearts and we understand really how precious those parts of us are Um, We engage in the pursuit of not just external forms of beauty, but really thinking about how do I illuminate and beautify my inside and ensure on a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual level, I have a process to reinvigorate strength once I've utilized it. I think some of the ways that we can do that is by challenging ourselves um, to kind of break out of what the norm is and what the monotonous cycles of the world or at times uh, and to go out and just be with people who are different from us to learn their stories from them as opposed to just our perceptions of them and then see how we can fit into being a real ally and resource at their direction uh, so that we become the reason that people have hope in this world and never the reason that people might dread it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we have about a minute and a half left, and I I, I want to emphasize and it's distill what you just said, which um, really supports what I've been trying to say and do on this show, which is that we cannot love other people unless we love ourselves first and foremost, mm-hmm. right? And but it is 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 not as simple or easy a task as it sounds, you know. And I, I want this show, you know, I was hoping uh, in a modest way for this show to to be a reminder um, and and a, a support towards that project, you know, of us paying attention to who we are and who we can be and and to maybe also offer one another, you know, the inspiration and the courage um, to pay full attention to ourselves um, 
to love ourselves as also a civic duty so that we can go out there in the world and give that that love and that beauty to others around us as opposed to fear and, and destructiveness. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's wonderful that, uh, you know, we didn't plan for it, but I knew that you would, though, in inviting you, that you are lending support to what I'm trying to say. Uh, so thank you so much. <laughs> Maybe, you know, if we all pay attention, uh, we come to the same conclusion, the same point anyway, which is that life can be beautiful and, and, and very loving uh, if we just stop the yeah, noise. Um, right and listen to ourselves and to one another so Halit I wish you a, a wonderful day with your family and loved ones and uh, in your work and again thank you so so much for taking the time to come talk to me and the listeners thank you uh, thank yes you. and for you all out there um, peace and love and beauty and friendship I will find you again next week bye bye for now Thank you for tuning to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human. Please join Dr. Leanne Nguyen again next Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And enjoy being alive.